Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in today because we're going to be talking about a brand new book that I highly recommend. It's called Disneyland on the Mountain. Walt, the environmentalist, and the ski resort that never was. And we have the authors with us here today. This book is really well written, and it's so interesting. And even though we're going to go through the story, uh, we're only going to hit the wave tops. So I definitely encourage you to get a hold of this book, Disneyland on the Mountain, because um, it is it is really, really enthralling. I really enjoyed it. Uh, our first guest is Greg Glasgow, uh, and we are Glasgow. I'm sorry, Greg. We're going to have you start us off. I, like I said, I love this book that you guys wrote, um, and I'd like to start by having you talk to us about why Walt Disney chose Mineral King as the site for the ski resort that he wanted to build, and what kind of destination he envisioned. How would the project have been unique given the amenities of ski resorts in California at the time? Well, first, thanks so much for having us. And thanks so much for your kind words on the book. They're much appreciated. So yeah, Walt Disney, of course, as we know, was, you know, the king of family-friendly entertainment. And this all was happening in the beginning, just about 10 years after Disneyland had opened in 1965. So he was kind of looking for the next big experiential project. And he was looking at this area in California called Mineral King, kind of in the central part of the state near Fresno and Bakersfield. And he was familiar with this area. He actually knew a landowner there. He knew it was a really beautiful spot that would make for a great ski area. But actually, it was on national forest land. So the Forest Service is really the the entity that kind of got the ball rolling on this in 1965 when they put this area out for bids. So they basically said, we have this great area it's going to be great for skiing. You know, we invite any company that's interested in developing it to, you know, send us your bid, your proposal for this. And Disney was one of six different companies that sort of applied to do this. And then they would run the ski resort on this land that would be leased from the Forest Service and they would kind of split the proceeds. So that's really kind of how the whole thing started. But Walt definitely knew this area And he wanted to build, you know, being Walt Disney, he really had in mind a family-friendly ski resort that would welcome skiers of all abilities and all ages. He wanted to have, in addition to skiing, other kinds of snow activities like sledding and tobogganing, inner tubing. And then he wanted the summertime to be a big draw as well with, you know, using the ski list to bring people to the tops of the mountains and hiking and different outdoor sports. So, you know, it really would have been different than a lot of the ski resorts at the time that were a little more basic, a little more geared towards sort of the day athlete, someone that would come up that was a pretty experienced skier that would come up for the day and go skiing. This really would have been a resort area with, you know, overnight accommodations, lots of restaurants. And again, in that kind of Disney fashion would have been very family friendly and really would have celebrated the natural beauty of that area. It sounds lovely. (laughs) It sounds like a place we'd all really love to go. (laughs) Catherine, I want to bring you on. Catherine Mayer is Greg's wife and co-author of the book. Um, When Walt first announced his his vision to the press, he had then-governor Pat Brown with him. I'd love for you to talk to us about the partnership 
Disney had with the state of California and how the state would be involved in the project? Sure. Well, glad to be on. So thanks. Thanks certainly for having us. It was interesting because they actually had Disney was also partnering with the federal government in addition to the state government, which is important to mention because the U.S. Forest Service and the Park Service were the ones who actually put this area up for bid, this area of Mineral King, California. Um, so that was, you know, a significant partnership was with the federal government in, in running this and opening this and creating this. But of course, like you said, it was important that the state of California help out and be involved in this. And you mentioned California Governor Pat Brown. He is actually on the cover of our book with Walt Disney at a at a big press conference. That is actually when the our, we open our book in 1966 at this big press conference. And what's important about the press conference is that it was there that Pat Brown in the state of California said that they were going to give a lot of the funds um, and help to finance a, an all-weather highway that would need to be built and constructed to you know to open at the same time as this resort because at the time this area in Mineral King was extremely difficult to get to. It was it only had you know it had a very small primitive road. It took basically hours to get through. It was really difficult. It was closed for most of the year. So they needed to construct this, this highway, um, you know, to open this resort successfully and get people to the mountain. So, so that was a big, big role for the state of California. And, and just in general, as you could imagine, the state of California and, and the politicians of the state were very excited about it. As you can imagine, about a decade earlier, Walt had opened Disneyland in Anaheim. That was a, that was a big hit. So of course, with Walt opening another destination, it was going to bring in lots of money into the state. It was going to, you know, create a lot of jobs. So politicians like Pat Brown were, were, were certainly very excited about this. That's really interesting. And Pat Brown was a builder. I mean, a lot of the state's infrastructure, even that we still rely upon today, was built during his administration. Now, Greg, prior to announcing his vision for Mineral King Ski Resort, Walt Disney had a reputation as a nature lover. I'd love for you to talk to us about some of his achievements, his projects and accolades that earned him recognition in nature and animal loving circles. Yeah, this was something that sort of came as a surprise to us in our research. I mean, of course, you know, you know, you see animals in films like Bambi and Snow White and things like that. But we really discovered this came out of a genuine love that Walt had for nature, for wildlife, for the outdoors. He spent some of his childhood on a farm in Missouri that really kind of ignited that passion. And then over the years, you know, you know that all the early Disney shorts have all kinds of animals in them as well. And then Bambi really was kind of a turning point and actually was sort of, a lot of people say it was sort of an inciting thing for the environmental movement. So by the time the 60s came around and this environmental conservation movement was taking off, a lot of these people had grown up with Bambi and also with a really interesting series of nature and wildlife documentaries that Walt produced in the 40s, 50s, and 60s called The True Life Adventure. So these were really kind of the first ever wildlife documentaries that have become so popular now. And he would send camera crews all over the world, you know, sometimes for a year or two to track the movements of all these 
exotic animals. And at the time for a lot of school kids and things like that, this was kind of their first introduction to a lot of these animals and a lot of these areas. So as time went on and as that series got more popular and we've actually found a great quote from Walt where he said, you know, this is the most fun I've ever had making movies as these mm -hmm. true adventures. But he got a lot of, as you said, a lot of accolades from different organizations. The Department of the Interior gave him an award for True Life Adventures. The ASPCA gave him an award. And uh, he even got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Sierra Club, which, as we talk more about the book, is a little ironic because this is the group that ended up opposing this ski resort project. Um, and then he also was actually the spokesman for the National Wildlife, Wildlife Federation's National Wildlife Week as well. So a lot of different um, connections he had to kind of the environmental groups. Well, that is fascinating. And I know that up to this point, some of my listeners were probably wondering, Jill, why are you talking about a Disneyland ski resort on Go Green Radio? And now we're going to find out why. Catherine, I'm going to go to you. In the late 40s, the Sierra Club actually recommended Mineral King as a prime location for skiing after they convinced the Forest Service to abandon plans to construct uh, a ski area in another area of California. But in 1961, when Sierra Club member John Harper got wind that Disney was looking at Mineral King, he was of a different mind. Talk to us about John Harper's views on the development of Mineral King. Yeah, it was it was so interesting. So John Harper was a Sierra Club member and a leader. He was president of a local chapter. He would go on these club outings to Mineral King, and then he would go to Mineral King by himself. He just really loved that area. He thought it was a great escape. So when he kind of heard some rumors about the fact that this was going to be developed, and then also that the Disney name was being thrown out, he was extremely upset because this was kind of an interesting time in the Sierra Club history where they started getting a little more active and a little more involved in, in certain things like development and things like that. And the whole nation as a, as a whole was, was certainly doing that as well. So there was a great deal of concern about is every pretty wilderness area going to be developed? You know, are we going to have anything left? So, so that was kind of what was what was happening and and at the time you know years years back the Sierra Club actually had said you can develop Mineral King but they, mm -hmm. they listed it as a compromise um but then uh, but then they kind of changed their tune a little bit and I think that was also just again you know how things were changing in in mm -hmm. U.S. history Yep. And Greg, I'm going to go to you. The Sierra Club had members with vastly different opinions about what the organization should do about Mineral King. Talk to us about the internal conflict that the Sierra Club experienced before reaching its final position on this. Yeah, that was another interesting thing from the research. And, you know, I mean, part of it is that there were Sierra Club members who were skiers, right? So there were people that were very interested in having this built, having some skiing areas closer to home. But beyond that, as you said, the Sierra Club had recommended this area as a as a location. They had sort of given their approval officially to say we don't oppose development here. That was back in, I think, 1947. So by the time 1965 came around and this new prospectus came out from the Forest Service, the club had changed a lot. Like Catherine said, they now were a lot more sort of activist. They were a lot more um you know, sort of militant in a way against developments like this. So they really, we found this 
these minutes from this very contentious meeting they had where half of the members were saying, you know, we, we gave our word that we could develop this area. Some of us want it here. And a lot of the other younger members were saying, you know, we can't develop this. We have to kind of stay strong against it. So there really was a big, as you said, a big contentious moment where they had to figure out what they wanted to do. And just when you think that this was the only time in U.S. history that we have generational conflict going on, you go back to something like this and realize that even before the phrase, okay, boomer, um, we had generational conflict. I mean, some of the old guard in the Sierra Club was saying, who's going to trust us if we go back on this recommendation we made in the 40s? And some of the younger members in the 60s were like, too bad. This isn't the right thing for us to be doing. So it's really interesting. And I love that part of the book. We're going to take a quick break. But when we come back, we have so much more with Greg and Catherine. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so glad that you tuned in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking with the authors of a brand new book called Disneyland on the Mountain. And you're probably thinking, what? What does this have to do with Go Green Radio? Well, it actually is an amazingly interesting book that it really chronicles a pivotal moment in the environmental movement in the U.S., in the Sierra Club. And I'm so excited to bring this story to you guys. Uh, we're going to go to you, Catherine. 
you know, when the Forest Service opened up Mineral King for bids uh, to, to make this into a ski resort, Walt Disney wasn't the only one bidding to develop Mineral King. Talk to us about his main competitor and what he brought to the table. Sure, that's right. So there were a number of bids for this area, I think six um, in total. But the main competitor was a man named Robert Brandt. He was a stockbroker. He um, he actually, interestingly, got the ball rolling on getting the U.S. Forest Service and the Park Service to put Mineral King up for bid, believe it or not. He did this about a year prior to it, to it actually being open for bids. Um, so a lot of people thought, like, this was the guy. This was the guy that was going to develop this area. He loved this area. He had gone to it before. And, you know, he was also proposing you know, kind of a bigger and better resort than I think even the the Forest Service even mm-hmm. even imagined. He came into when when people were delivering their bids, he rolled up with with a huge trailer which had models of what he was trying to create. It was very beautiful, got people's attention. He envisioned kind of a Nordic theme um, area, uh, lots mm-hmm. of Vikings and, and things like that. So it would have been certainly really interesting. And, um, what was interesting about him was he was married to a very famous actress at the time, Janet Lee, who I'm sure people know who that is. She's the, the famous psycho actress and bye bye birdie and things like that. And so she actually arrived with Robert Brandt, got, got a lot of attention, certainly, and when we were doing our research for this book, we talked to, you know, a few different people who actually lived in that area at the time. And they said that day, you know, around then there was so much excitement for, you know, first of all, there was Janet Lee who showed up mm-hmm. to this little town in Porterville, California. And then there was, of course, Walt Disney, who was a celebrity, certainly in his own right. He, you know, of course, he created movies and things, but people knew him because he had his Sunday night program. Mm-hmm. So there's like these two big celebrities at the time who came to deliver these bids, which was which was really kind of a fun, fun part of the fun part of the book. That's really, it was a fun part of the book. I love that chapter, the Hollywood bidding war and everything. It was really cool. Yep. Uh, Greg, back to you. Now, you know, this is, it seems like a very California-centric situation, but a lot of the decision-making was actually in Washington, D.C. And so how did Disney and Brandt's political ties factor into this bidding war? That was another really interesting part of the story in our research. As Catherine mentioned, you know, I think the Forest Service was maybe not expecting the scope of what Disney and Brandt were proposing. I mean, this was millions and millions of dollars more than sort of what their minimum was in their prospectus. So I think just the sheer scope of what they were proposing made the people in California kind of say, yeah, we're not, you know, are we qualified to make this decision? And then on top of that, as you said, Walt Disney was part of the Hollywood Republican Committee. He was very close with Governor Brown, with Ronald Reagan, who would, who at that point was running for governor. Um, he was very connected with the Republican politicians in California and in Washington. And Robert Brandt, as well, was a big supporter of Lyndon Johnson. His wife, Janet Lee, had campaigned for Lyndon Johnson. At one point, he actually asked her to be the ambassador to Finland. So both of these guys were very well connected. And the foresters and the people in California 
who were originally tasked with making this decision, I think they kind of thought, you know, any decision we make is probably going to be appealed to Washington anyway. And at the time, um, the Secretary of Agriculture who oversaw the Forest Service, Orville Freeman, he actually reached out, you know, they'd heard about the situation, heard about the bids, and they said, maybe we should start considering these in Washington, given who these two guys are. And the people in California were sort of all too happy <laughs> to say, sure, move it to there. So there was actually two days of hearings in D.C. I mean, one for Disney. So Walt was there with his brother, Roy, and a bunch of the other Disney executives to present their vision and their proposal for Mineral King. And then a week or so later, Robert Brandt did the same thing. So yeah, it all was happening in Washington. And that decision was ultimately made a couple of months later that Disney won the bid and of course started to move ahead with their plans for the resort. Pretty cool. That that was a great segment. And I got to say, once again, to our listeners, get a hold of this book. The way that it's written is so interesting and so well written that it's an enthralling story. Um, Catherine, I want to go back to you. At the same time that Mineral King's destiny was being decided, Disney was embarking on the development of Disney World in Orlando. How did these dual projects in, you know, different parts of the country impact the company? Oh, yeah. I mean, gosh, it was such an interesting time for in Disney history. So this was really a fertile time in, yeah, in Disney history. They had a big role at the World's Fair in New York in the 1960s. They started to have a lot of live action film success with films like Mary Poppins. So things were already going pretty well for them. Um, And then, of course, Disneyland had opened, like I think I had mentioned a little earlier, in 1955. And that was a massive success. Things had gone so well for Disneyland. They, they They were starting to create new attractions and things like that already for Disneyland. And then, of course, they started to come up with this ski resort in Mineral King, California. And so the Mineral King Ski Resort was actually going to be the second experiential destination that the company created. It was going to be, you know, something major. And I think even when we talk about, you know, what it was going to be, it was probably going to be so much bigger, right? Than we would have mm-hmm. imagined because, you know, with Disney, it's, it's you know, like Disneyland was not just an amusement park. It was, it became so much more than that. It was, it was a great um, you know, it really changed the game. And I think this certainly was going to change the game too. And they also, the company also announced the Florida project, which then later became Walt Disney World in in Florida. And they actually announced both the ski resort and Disney World within months of each other, which is mm-hmm. crazy to think. I mean, it just, they were so busy with with this and i think and this was obviously when they were really becoming this vacation destination they wanted to have these opportunities for people to go to a destination kind of get lost in the magic you know mm-hmm. lost in what these films kind of did to transport us but they would do it in in a very real way so it was it was pretty exciting um and it's kind of hard to believe that disneyland the florida project and the ski resort were all within, you know, within a, a decade or so of each other. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing and audacious amount of work for this company. But like you said, they were at the pinnacle of success. 
Uh, um, and then, and Greg, I'm going to go to you. Walt Disney's health took a turn for the worse. Talk to us about what happened and the impact that it had both on the family and on the company. That was, yeah, a tragic moment in the in the book and in the history of, of the company and of this project, really. So, yeah, his, his health had taken a turn for the worse. He was scheduled to get surgery for an old polo injury that was causing him some pain in his neck. And during kind of the pre-surgical workup, the doctors discovered a walnut-sized mass on his lung, that he had lung cancer. Of course, he was a smoker for many years. And then not soon after that, and this was again, only about a year after Disney had first won the rights to develop Mineral King. And Walt sort of unexpectedly died in December of 1966, just a couple months after that press conference with Pat Brown. So, you know, his brother Roy at that point kind of stepped up to the plate to take charge of the company. He at the time said, we're going to, you know, definitely continue with all these projects that were so important to Walt, including Mineral King, including the Florida Project. And so they, you know, they carried on with with Walt's vision as well as they could. Although, you know, Walt again had that passion for the outdoors, for wildlife, for skiing, and Roy maybe didn't quite share that. There were some moments behind closed doors where he said, you know, Disney is in, we're in the amusement park business, we're in the movie business, we're not in the skiing business. So it was maybe, you know, not quite put on the back burner, but the focus was a little less maybe on Mineral King and more on uh, the Florida project at that point, especially as some of this environmental opposition started to take hold. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the things I love about your book is that as you introduce new players into, you know, the, the story, you do a great job of telling us the, the history of each of these people. And there are some really fascinating characters. We won't get to all of them in the show, but one of them was Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall. Catherine, talk to us about the man and his impact on the development of Mineral King. Sure. So Udall was the Secretary of the Interior at the time. He had been appointed by JFK. He had worked on a lot of environmental legislation, including the Clean Air Act, uh, the Wilderness Act. Um, and so he was kind of at the cusp of people getting really involved in environmental issues. He actually even wrote a book called The Quiet Crisis, which became a really influential book um, to, you know, to, to this time, to the environmental movement. He basically warned of impending environmental disaster. So um again he was he was really an important important player and of course he had this these political connections so mm -hmm. he, you know he was quite worried about about this development and he in particular he really opposed this highway that had to be built to create this development so like we mentioned earlier in our conversation, um, the road, there was a road into Mineral King, but it was, it was extremely difficult. The, you know, this resort really couldn't have been, have been created without also creating a highway that was going to be, to be built. But the problem was that the highway was actually going to be not just, you know, go to Mineral King, but it was also going to have to cut through Sequoia National Park. Um, which was Sequoia National Park was right next to Mineral King at the time. 
And so, of course, there was a lot of concerns. That was a lot of the reason why people were were quite concerned about this development, because there was going to have to be this big highway that was also going to cut through the national park. So Udall really spoke up spoke up about those concerns, particularly that highway. He urged Disney and the state to look into a monorail or an electric railway. And so, yeah, he, he, um, he certainly played a, played a big role in that opposition. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating in the book uh, to see just how influential this one man was, um, you know, you kill the road, you can kill the project, or so they thought, you know, make it expensive or too expensive, maybe to to bring people in by another means of transportation. It was really, really um, an interesting, pivotal moment in the book. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Catherine and uh, Greg on their new book, Disneyland on the Mountain. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us. And if you've just tuned in, let me catch you up. Today, we're talking about a brand new book. Um, it's called Disneyland on the Mountain, Walt, the Environmentalist, and the Ski Resort that Never Was. This book is fascinating. It's it's a great story about the history of Disney, the history of the Sierra Club, the history of the U.S. environmental movement all in one. And it's really, really good. And we're about to introduce a new character to the story. Catherine, talk to us about the early years of Gene Koch's campaign against the development of Mineral King. 
sure. Jean Coke was maybe my favorite character actually in this book. Mm-hmm. She was she was really a remarkable, remarkable woman. She owned a cabin in Mineral King. Um, so this was extremely personal for her. There were at the time there were about 60 or so cabins in that area. So even though it was, you know, underdeveloped, it wasn't like it had a huge footprint or anything. It certainly did have a handful of cabin owners who, who lived there and Jean was one of them. So her, you know, in addition to others, she didn't know if her cabin was going to be torn down to make room for, for this resort. And of course, even if it wasn't, she certainly didn't want there to be thousands of people in her own, you know, personal, personal oasis. She didn't want there to be whirling machinery and tons of visitors and tons of different hotels and things like that. Um, so, so she basically started to campaign against this. She actually also was a Sierra club member, but she basically wrote I mean, hundreds, maybe thousands of letters throughout the years um, talking about the dangers of this, of, of a development. And she didn't want it to be built. She said there was a lot of avalanche danger. She said that it was going to, you know, take away the natural beauty. It was a, it was a big mistake. So it was a lot of letter writing campaigns. She actually started a newsletter that she sent out to, to tons of different people and she started collecting collecting money to fund some of these campaigns. She would um, put up posters and, and flyers and donation jars all around the area. And then uh, the Forest Service and the parks parks rangers would would come and tear them down, and she would put them right back up again. Very interesting person. Um, she also basically started to create. Uh, she started hikings in the area to get hundreds of people to become aware of this area, to become aware of how beautiful it was. And she would get involvement from politicians. She would get involvement from the Disney company. She reached out to them. She actually didn't fault the Disney company. She actually blamed most of this on the government. So that was another interesting thing. But she she did a lot more throughout the years that people could read all about in the book. Um, but really, really a very interesting person you know, straddling the the lines of environmental rights, which were increasing at the time that movement, and of course, women's rights movement, which was also increasing at the time. So, so very, very instrumental to this opposition. Mm-hmm. And Greg, I want to go to you. You know, in this day and age, we're so used to, you know, of course, an individual could have a big impact, you know, I mean, somebody can sit in their living room, make TikTok videos and become an influencer. But at the time that Jean was doing this, that vehicle was not available. And she took a really grassroots movement in a local area and made it into something much bigger. Talk to us about how that happened. Yeah, that's a really good point. She, yeah, like Catherine said, I mean, just this letter writing campaign, these flyers, she actually donated a lot of her letters and different press clippings and things to the University of Southern California. There's an archive there that we went to go see. And it was really cool to see all these posters and all these sort of tangible physical things that people used to create you know, before they could just mm-hmm. post it on Facebook. But yeah, I mean, this started to really grow. She actually organized the other cabin owners in the area into a group called the Mineral King District Association that sort of worked alongside the Sierra Club 
to oppose this development. She funded a documentary film about the area to create awareness of it. And yeah, the hike-ins like Catherine mentioned, and they just started to get a lot of attention sort of locally and even nationally. The New York Times wrote an editorial at one point um, weighing in on the controversy and saying that President Johnson should just issue a executive order to protect this area. So this really, really started to grow as, you know, as Disney is working on their final plans kind of side by side with the Sierra Club and with Gene working kind of on their resistance efforts at the same time. It wasn't all resistance. You know, there were some people who were really excited about this, as we mentioned earlier. And when Disney first presented its final plans for Mineral King in early 1969, a lot of people were really enthusiastic. What were some of the benefits, Greg, that supporters looked forward to with the Disney Resort? Yeah, that was the interesting part. And something that's important to note is that, I mean, despite the fact that the Sierra Club and the Mineral King District Association and others were against this resort, there certainly were lots and lots of people that were completely for the resort. And there was a ton of excitement that we see when we went back and looked at newspaper articles from the time. I mean, the excitement about, oh, Walt Disney's coming in to build this. It's going to be great. This area was equidistant from LA and San Francisco. So there's a lot of skiers in those areas that were excited about having skiing closer to home. And then in addition, you know, they they looked, they did a report that this was this was going to bring $22 million into the local economy, was going to create a lot of jobs. So there's just a lot of excitement about what it was going to be, what it was going to do for the area, kind of make it this real tourism mecca. And really a new place for skiing that would be a lot closer than many of the other places that existed at the time. And Catherine, this is the point in the story where the Sierra Club sued to stop the Mineral King Ski Resort, but they didn't sue Disney. Talk to us about who they did sue and what the legal strategy entailed. Sure. So like we talked about, there was certainly a lot of different activism, grassroots activism that was happening, but... Um, you know, it was getting attention, but it certainly, but it didn't stop Disney from, you know, planning this thing and for, for things to keep chugging along. So they did turn to a legal, a legal avenue and decided to sue to stop the project. But they, what was really interesting is that they did not sue Disney. They thought they were very strategic in the fact that they did not want to sue Disney because they thought that that wasn't going to look great for them. Essentially, and we talked to one of our big sources was uh, Mike McCloskey, who was the uh, leader of the Sierra Club for many years. And he basically led this legal opposition on behalf of the Sierra Club. So, you know, they really talked about Disney was a very beloved company and, you know, people associated them with, with Mickey Mouse and roller coasters mm. and, you know, fun things. So they thought that suing Disney, there was some kind of a quote at some point that they said, I don't remember exactly what, what it said, something to the fact of if they sued Disney, it was like suing mom and the American flag and the Boy Scout. Mm. <laughs> so it was really, really interesting. So instead they sued the park service, the forest service, um, again, the people that allowed, you know, put this area up for bed and allowed this to happen. So it was a very, very thoughtful thing that they did. And basically they sued for, it, it was a number of different reasons which people could, could find out about when they read this, hopefully. 
Um, but certainly the road was was a big point of contention. The fact that it was going to cut through Sequoia National Park, like we mentioned, there was there was questions about how, you know how how many acres this thing was. Um, if you included the ski runs and things like that, there was a question of the stat its mineral king status as a, a national game refuge. There was uh, questions about avalanche danger and things like that. So really, I mean, really overall, it was about that threat to the natural beauty of the area, but, but they did it very strategically and, and, and very thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. And they actually got even agriculture involved. I mean, they were talking about the pollution from uh-huh. the road and yeah. how that might impact agriculture. And at that time, and it's still true, that's a huge part of California's economy. You do not mess with ag. Ask anybody who deals with water in the state of California. Yeah. Yeah. Don't touch it. Yep. <laughs> and so that was, you know, it, it was very strategic. And this was a first for the Sierra Club to to go to the mat in a legal sense. And it actually ended up being their first case in front of the Supreme Court. And Greg, I'd love for you to tell us the story of how this case unfolded and how it was ultimately adjudicated. Yeah, that was a super interesting part of the story. And, you know, when we first started looking into this, we weren't even really aware that there was a Supreme Court case even involved with this Disney ski project. And that's one of the things that we thought, wow, what a great book. There's so much to it. But essentially, the Sierra Club filed suit in 1969 to stop the project. Their first case was successful. They got a temporary injunction. Of course, the government appealed. The government won on appeal. And then the Supreme Court kind of took a long shot, appealed it to the Supreme Court. And the time was kind of right in environmental law for the Supreme Court to hear a case like this. So the Supreme Court took it. They heard all the evidence. And they actually ruled in favor of the resort, in favor of the government against the Sierra Club, which is kind of a surprise in a way. You would think that, oh, the story must end with the Sierra Club winning in the court. But that's not really how it went down. Um, You know, at issue really was the the legal standing of the Sierra Club to bring a suit like this. They sort of deliberately didn't show how this development was going to affect them as a club. They chose instead to sue just to protect the natural beauty of Mineral King. And the Supreme Court said, you actually don't have the standing in that case, you know, to bring this suit. But a really interesting part of the case was that the Supreme Court put a footnote in their decision and said, of course, our decision doesn't say that you couldn't go back and file a new lawsuit saying how you would be affected. So the Supreme Court or the Sierra Club rather did just that and tied this thing up in further legal limbo. And there was also a couple of really famous dissents in the case and the decision, including one by William Douglas, arguing that, you know, this whole question, should trees have standing? Should mm-hmm mineral king sort of be able to be its own plaintiff in a sense and could it just protect itself you know again this whole idea that later became a lot more popular of should you know natural areas can you just sue to protect them purely on their aesthetic beauty not having to show how someone is going to be financially harmed by it mm-hmm. how a human being is going to be impacted yeah. yeah and and that was pivotal in in us jurisprudence and and really really a great part of the book we're going to take a quick commercial break but when we come back we have more with greg and Catherine. so don't go away folks there's more go green radio right after this
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. We're talking about a brand new book, Disneyland on the Mountain. We have both of its authors here with us today. And just before we went to commercial break, we got to the point in the story where the Sierra Club loses at the Supreme Court. And you think, oh, gosh, what's going to happen next? Well, Catherine, Disney scaled down its plans. And then Governor Reagan squashed the high-speed road that had been so controversial. But opposition forces kept up their work. Talk to us about those efforts. Sure. Yeah. Just just when you think that things were going to go okay for the, the resort, things in some ways got worse, even though, like you said, they scaled, Disney scaled down the resort. They even, you know, of course they won the Supreme Court case. So it was, it was really interesting. I think, I think in some ways, you know, the Supreme Court and the 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 case and the legal battle in general really got people's attention. You know, a lot of more people got involved in this. There were certainly a lot of newspaper articles and things like that. And so this opposition kept growing and in some cases got got kind of more interesting in, in a lot of ways. In the in the 1970s, there were things like there was a march on Disneyland, which we write about in so, you know, it was obviously, you know, quote unquote, an enemy in the enemy's gates, people who opposed this Mineral King project wanted to, to get Disney's attention. And they certainly did. They held up signs. They gave flyers to people walking by and going into Disneyland. And we spoke to one of the people that ran this march and uh, you know he, he was talking about you know how this all went there was at one point the disney helicopters followed them and the police were following them to make sure you know they weren't doing anything super damaging but but that was certainly an interesting one there was also there was a number of other protests there was a protest at one of the disney disney annual stockholders meetings in la at the time and 
you know, they're protesting, they're holding up signs again, saying they, they can't create this thing. They can't make the ski resort in Mineral King. And, and they got a lot of stockholders really wary. And that was actually a big point of contention. There was a lot of discussion and debate about, you know, should Disney continue with this? And so that was another really interesting thing. And, and, um, Gene Coke and with USC filmmaker students, they had funded and created this documentary on Mineral King. They basically talked about what Mineral King was, its incredible history. They had some beautiful scenes of what it looked like. And they talked about the fact, they talked all about this development and what it would do and, and why it shouldn't happen. And and that certainly got a lot of people's attention too. And in fact, Stuart Udall, who we talked about earlier, he was actually in the film. He was interviewed. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really, really interesting. So all these efforts made certainly a big difference. And it was a massive headache, of course, for, for Disney, who thought, you know, this was going to be over. Um, mm-hmm. interestingly, interestingly enough, that documentary is actually on Amazon Prime um, to this day, even though it came out in the, in the 70s. So if people were very interested, they could they could watch this thing. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. And and another great part of the book. I mean, the the book just is it's the hits that keep on coming yeah. <laughs> uh, every chapter. Greg, talk to us about the upshot of John Krebs' work with the Forest Service final environmental impact statement. Right. This is the this is the the point in the book when it all starts to sort of come to a close. So John Krebs was a U.S. representative from Fresno, California, elected in 1974. So kind of when all this, you know, controversy was at a a fever pitch. And he really was aware of the controversy, talked to a lot of constituents about it early on, actually went to the Sierra Club at one point and said, what are your recommendations? How can we best manage this? And then, as you mentioned, at the same time, there was this environmental impact statement that had come out. There was a new law passed in 1970, sort of in conjunction, in a sense, with the Mineral King case. Uh, Michael McCloskey, who Catherine mentioned from the Sierra Club, had gone to testify in front of Congress in support of this bill. And this was the bill that essentially said that any big federal project that had the potential to harm the environment had to have an impact statement done first. And these could take years. I think it took between the draft and the final statement three to four years to put that together, which was just another piece of the legal limbo that this development found itself in. But once the final statement came out and they didn't find any significant impacts of this, the stage was kind of clear for the development finally to move forward again But Krebs, aware of this, he talked with his constituents and he actually created a bill to put the Mineral King area into Sequoia National Park. And he wasn't the first to do this. There had been other lawmakers that had had similar bills over the years. But again, for him, the time was right. He actually got the support of the Carter administration. And, you know, environmentalism was really big at this point. And that was sort of the death knell really for the project. His bill um, was eventually added to a big omnibus parks bill that preserved a lot of other areas. And that was signed by Carter. And then Mineral King got put into the park. And that was that. And that it was couldn't that. be developed. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's how it finally came to rest. And so Catherine, though Disney did not build a ski resort, how did the company 
contribute to innovations in the ski industry? What was some of the, where do we see their fingerprints on the ski industry? Uh, I mean, in so many ways, which again, going into this and and writing this, we had absolutely no idea, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, they basically, you know, when we talked about Disney at the time was trying to create this family-friendly resort. It was, you know, at the time, Disney's resort was going to be extremely different than anything that that was around at the time. It was going to be year-round. It was going to attract non-skiers. It was going to attract families. It was going to, you know, just have entertainment. And that's basically what then became of ski resorts now. A lot of a lot of places basically took these ideas that that Disney did. Um, there's one example that we write about, which which we're excited for people to read about, but uh, Vail Resort here in Colorado, where Greg and I live in Colorado, they basically took all these ideas. They actually, um, the CEO of Vail at the time was friends with the president of of Disney and was able to go through and actually look at all these plans in the 1980s that um and basically reinvented it and it became a massive success. So you know Walt mm-hmm. as usual was ahead of his time and what he was creating and and a lot of ski resorts benefited from this and became extremely popular in in the years since. And that is mm-hmm. in large part due to Walt Disney. Amazing. And and Greg, what were some of the lasting legacies on the Disney company that came from their experience with Mineral King? Yeah, they certainly learned a lot of lessons from this. I mean, this was the first big project they did that didn't happen. I mean, it's the first thing where they really had to to battle with governments and things that we sort of see them doing now in, in other areas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they sort of learned to, I think, be tenacious and kind of stick to what they really think is best for the company and what's best for their customers. I mean, they did, you know, they made some concessions along the way, but they really tried to stay true to that vision. And they tried to stay true to Walt's vision, which is something that's really interesting that we still see today. You walk into the parks and there's the statue of Walt there. They really have always had him as their guiding light. And another big lesson they learned is, you know, just to work with local communities in a way that they Mm -hmm. did Mineral King when they built the Alani Resort in Hawaii. They really worked with the community there. They put together a council of you know, native Hawaiians to help them make sure that this was a culturally sensitive, you know, something that would fit right into. Absolutely. Big lesson learned there. And they did a great job. Uh, You know, Greg and Catherine, I wish we had another hour. This was fascinating. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.